Do you love the world? At first blush, it seems like a somewhat strange question. Because aren't we supposed to love the world of God's creation? Doesn't the Apostle Paul say in 1 Timothy 4.4 that everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving? Why then does the Apostle John in 1 John 2.15-17 command us not to love the world? Why would I need to refuse to love the world when John says in John 3.16 that God so loved the world? Should we hate what God loves? It's a really important question for the Christian life and for gospel understanding and for spiritual sanctification. Don Carson helps us differentiate between God's love for the world and our need not to love it when he writes this in his helpful book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. In brief, God loves the world and Christians had better not. The impression is pretty strong that if people love the world, they remain under God's wrath. The love of the Father is not in them. God's love for the world is commendable because it manifests itself in awesome self-sacrifice. Our love for the world is repulsive when it lusts for evil participation. God's love for the world is praiseworthy because it brings the transforming gospel to it. Our love for the world is ugly because we seek to be conformed to the world. God's love for the world issues in certain individuals being called out from the world and into the fellowship of Christ's followers. Our love for the world is sickening where we wish to be absorbed into the world. So, Carson says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 1 John 2.15 But clearly... We are to love the world in the sense that we are to go into every part of it and bring the glorious gospel to every creature. In this sense, we imitate in our small ways the holy, praiseworthy love of God for the world. Now, the answer to this question of love or hate for the world is incredibly important, of course, And it would take another separate sermon in order to understand all of the various nuances that John or even the other Bible writers mean when they refer to this word world, cosmos. And depending upon the context of each of those uses and depending upon the context of how John uses it when he does... It's very important to understand exactly what he means by his use in any different context of the word world. For instance, in 1 John 2, 15 to 17, if you would turn there, John is referring 
to the world in the sense that it is fraught with evil and evil desires. That's what he means by the word word, world there. And of course what he means in John 3.16 is that it is the world of people, the world of humanity. And when John talks about the world of humanity, the world of people, in John 3.16 he's referring to God so loving that world, the world of people, the world of humanity, that he sent his only son in order to redeem sinful humanity. But when he's talking, as he does here in 1 John 2, 15 to 17, the understanding is clear that he's talking about the evil of this world, the world and its evil. Follow along as I read 1 John 2, 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The outline of this morning's message is very, very clear. It's contained, as does this text, in three couplets of two distinct contrasts. Couplets, a couple of things linked together. Three couplets of two very distinct black and white contrasts. Here they are. Two drives, two desires, two destinations. Two drives, love of the world or love of the Father. Two desires, desires from the world or desires from the Father. And two destinations, a passing world or an eternal abiding As I have said to you already in our initial study of John's first letter, he's black and white. Everything comes to him in clear terms. And he challenges us to understand how those terms are to be understood and to be lived out. And 1 John 2, 15 to 17 is no different. He talks about two drives. It's either one or the other. He talks about two desires. It's either one set of desires or it is another set of desires. And he talks about two destinations. We're either destined for one place or we're destined for another. Let's look first at two drives. Love of the world or love of the Father. Notice what he says in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. Now this seems to be very dogmatic. Even as someone once said, this is 
probably even bulldogmatic. It's very apparent that John, in this black and white kind of world in which he's encouraging us to live, says there are really only two drives. It is the drive in your love for the world, or it is your drive, your compulsion to love the Father. He doesn't even seem to suggest that there's any room in between. And I suppose I understand why. You remember last time when John was talking in verses 12 to 14, when he said all of God's children, he referred to them as little children, are like either strong young men or aged fathers. And he's encouraging them to understand that in the world in which they lived, whereby the heretics were continually challenging these believers to come over to their side of thinking and their side of living, John wants them to know you cannot do that without severe eternal consequences. For instance, he says, if you indeed are like a young man, it is because you are strong and the Word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. And he says, if you are like a father, it is because you have known him who is from the beginning. And essentially, as I have been saying, those two kinds of looks or designations or qualities are related to the idea directly of the heretics who want people to believe their doctrine and to live their kind of life. And when John comes along and says, you should be like a young man in the faith and you should be like a father, those are the two perfect correspondences to doctrine and to living. What you believe and how you live. And so when he talks to them in such black and white contrastative terms, he's telling them, watch out for the heretics, watch out for what they believe, and watch out for how they live. If they don't come to you and present to you the true person of Christ, 100% God, 100% man, and if they don't love their brethren, they hate their brethren, watch out for what they say they believe and watch out for the way they say they live because it isn't true in either case. And that being the case, he adds what actually if you've been reading carefully, is the first imperative of this letter. First one. He hasn't said anything up to this point by way of a clear command, but now he does. And that clear command is this. Do not love the world. You've got to watch out for your doctrine, he says. That is the doctrine of the world, the doctrine of these heretics, and you've got, to, you've got to watch out for the way you live. That is, do not live like them, like the world. Because they'll say something and do another. They'll say they believe one thing and they'll live yet another way. And he says, by the way, by the use of this particular verb tense in 1 John 2.15, do not progressively, as a pattern of your life, love the world. 
Do not be in a habitual, ongoing relationship, a love relationship with the world because they'll believe and they'll live in a way that is directly opposite of God and His Word. Don't do it. Why? Why? Why is this important? Why is He so very importantly telling us by way of this clear command not to love the world. Well, to borrow, to borrow James' phrase in James 4.4, 4, that friendship with the world is what? Enmity with God. James and John are rightly distinguishing in very clear terms that if you love the world, if you're a friend of the world, then you don't love God. You're an enemy of God. James even goes on to say, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or as John says it here, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's an either-or relationship that we're talking about here. It's either-or. It's what drives you. And so I ask this morning, what drives you? What compels you? Uh, For what or for whom do you really love? Check your heart. Ask yourself the question, what or whom is the object of my love? Are you driven to pursue the things of this world? Or is the driving determination of your life the pursuit of God? The Father. Robert Yarbrough wrote about this very verse. Very wise words. He said this, Authentic love for God only exists when it has no essential rivals. That's right. Authentic love for God only exists when it has no essential rivals. What in your life, my friends, what in your life is a rival to the love of God? What is it in your life, what things in your life are a rival to your love for God? It's a very direct and yet very necessary and important question. You could even use Exodus 20 verse 3 as a benchmark. You could say, as does one of those top commandments of the ten, you shall have no other gods before me. I am the Lord your God and I am a jealous God. You know what he's saying by that essentially? There are to be no essential rivals. I am your God. I'm a jealous God. I exist because I have always existed. And I have created you for the purpose of worshiping the self-existent one, the one who was never created, the one who created you, and the one who in that creation calls the shots. I tell you how to live. I command you. I call you to love me. And I must have no essential rivals. You remember what Jesus himself 
said about serving two masters, Matthew 6.24, no one can serve two masters. For evil, he, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You see, it's, it's not a matter of someone saying, well, with a part of my heart, with a, a portion of my love, I'll serve the world, and with the remaining part of my heart, the remaining portion of my love, I'm going to serve God the Father. And I believe I can do both. I believe that I can have two rivals. I can have the serving of the one and the serving of the other. Jesus said, you may serve the one, but you cannot serve the other just doesn't work that way. The Lord Jesus must be the master of your whole life. And it's, it's always coming down to doctrine and practice, doctrine and living. And the heretics were saying something about doctrine and they were some, saying something about living. And John was saying, don't love the world either as to what it believes or either as to what it does. And if Jesus says, I must have the whole of your life, I must be the master of your life, for what would he mean in John's language? Look back at chapter 2, verse 3. And by this, we know that we've come to know him. In other words, we know that we have no rivals except him and him alone. And it is this, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Uh, this is the surety, the certainty that we love God and that we don't love the world. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And notice what he says in verse 9 of that same chapter. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. It's what you believe and it's how you live. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And someone, I assume would immediately begin to say, but what specifics? What are you talking about? I understand the concept of not loving the world, but what specifics are we talking about here? For what, if I am loving the world, for what characterizes that love? What does it look like? John goes on. Two desires. Not merely two drives, but the desires that manifest the drives. Two desires, desires from the world or desires from the Father. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions. Those are three of them, he suggests, three categories, three ways, three sets of desires that give us the clarity for whether or not we love the world or we love the Father. Here's what he says, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. You know what John does here? He invites us to answer which drive characterizes us by the specifics of verse 16. 
If you're looking for specifics, he says, I'm going to give it to you. It's the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the boastful pride of life or pride in possessions as the ESV has it. In other words, John says, I'm helping you determine what drives you by what desires you manifest. And again, black and white, it's either desires from the world or desires from the Father. And you know what the desires from the Father are because you know them by their opposites here, the desires from the world. Everything I say about these desires from the world are by their opposite, the desires of the Father. If you don't do these things, that means you're manifesting the desires from the Father. If you're doing these things, that means you are doing opposite of the desires from the Father. You're doing those desires that are from the world. Notice them. Number one, the desires of the flesh. John uses an interesting word here, desire. Not sure exactly why the ESV puts it in the plural form, although obviously we're not talking just about one desire. But he uses the singular word here, epithumia, and it's the word strong desire. Strong desire. And what's interesting about this particular word, I think it's used possibly maybe 38 times in the New Testament, and 35 of them are very negative. Three times it's used in very positive ways. But the vast majority of the times that this particular word, epithumia, is used are very negative. That means maybe not the word desires, but maybe the word lusts. Some of your Bibles may even have that. Lusts of the flesh. Maybe even another word could characterize it. Craving. Craving. A person who is worldly is someone whose desires are motivated by the flesh, or as some translations have it, sinful man. Flesh really talking about the human body as the instrument whereby the mind does its work. Doing its work through the fingers, the hands, the arms, the legs, other aspects anatomically of the body. It's not that the body does it on its own. It's that the body as an instrument is doing its dastardly deeds, its nefarious work based upon what the mind apprehends, what your thinking brings you to. Your thinking then motivates your body to do sinful deeds. And John says one of the categories of knowing whether or not you're driven toward the world, that you love the world, is to look at what your thinking does by what your body produces. John Piper has written in his book, A Hunger for God, this. Listen very carefully. The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's little by little. Little nibbles. It is not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For when these replace an appetite for God Himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. If you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed 
with small things and there is no room for the great. It's, it's what I tell my own children. It's what I tell my own children when others, friends, will want them to go see a movie that is made for, paid for, produced by, generated by, directed by, funded by the world. And when that temptation comes to watch what the world watches, to watch what the world produces, to watch what the world directs, to watch what the world wants to sell you in seeing, it's a very clear choice that if it's by the world, then it's the love of the world, and it no doubt also will pander to the lusts of the flesh. Ask yourself the question, whether it's movies or whatever other electronic media, or whatever visuals you're talking about, what do they say about Christ? What do they say about God? What do they say about the Holy Spirit? What do they say about the Christian life? And of course we know that the vast majority of the answers to that question is they don't say anything about those things. You say, well, then it's possibly neutral because they're not doing anything regarding God and Christ and the Holy Spirit and the Christian life and evangelization and, and our sanctification and our future glory. They're not saying anything about that. So it appears to me as though it might be neutral. But then ask yourself the question, what is the message that they're sending? What are they saying? What's the point of the film? What's their motive for the producing, for the producing of the actions and the words? And hardly there is a film, is there, that is neutral. It's a film, if it's from the world, going to be a film that tells you about how to love the world. You have to resist those kinds of temptations. You have to have what Jesus might have referred to when He talks about the radical amputation of sinful desires, the desires of the flesh. Didn't Jesus teach us that we must fight hard against the lusts of this world. Lusts, for instance, like sexual sin, are to be radically amputated from your life. Listen to Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then this, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. He's talking about radical amputation. He's not talking about literally cutting off your hand or plucking out your eye. He's talking metaphorically about the radical nature of what you must do to fight sin in your life. You must be radical about it. There's a spiritual warfare going on. Do we assume that Satan is not behind much that is in the world? Much if not most. He's the God of this world. He's trying to ply his trade so that you and I will be damaged spiritually so that we will be ineffective as Christians. And we must, with all of our hearts, say no to the lusts of the flesh. He gives a second category here. Desires of the eyes. The desires of the eyes. And when I talk about radical amputation and 
talking about it in the context of movies or the internet or something like that. And I'm not saying literally, as Jesus is not saying literally, pluck out your eye, cut off your hand. We are, nevertheless, talking about what we physically see and what we physically do with our bodies. And when he says here, the desires of the eyes, he's not talking about the eyeball. That's just the vehicle to which you see what you see, both spiritually and literally. So what do you see, literally? What do you watch? Upon what do your eyes gaze? What do you choose to look at? There's nothing wrong with the eyeball. It's It's a wonderful invention of God. It's a wonderful designer creation. It's It really is. If you've ever studied the human eye and the complexities of the eye, it's just, it's just massively fascinating. In fact, even the Bible, Proverbs 20, verse 12 says, The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord made them both. But if the Lord, the Creator, has made the human eye, the eyeball, for godly purposes, for holy purposes, what do we look at? What do we see? What are we choosing to open our eyes toward? And like the sinful misuse of the human body, your hand, some other aspect of your body, the eye is no different. You can use it for good or for evil purposes. What do you use your eyes for? What do you look at? What do you read? What do you ponder about that which you are seeing? And again, Jesus' teaching on this subject is so crucial for us to stand to understand. Listen to what he says in Matthew 5, 22, just a little bit above what I read to you earlier. The eye, the eye, and he's talking spiritually now, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, that means what you're looking out through to see the world, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light, the metaphor of light. God is light in whom is no darkness at all. If you walk with God, you walk in the light, you love your brother, you believe the right kinds of things, you're filled with light. You can see clearly because the light has allowed the pervasiveness of righteousness to spill out in everything you see and everything you want to see. But Jesus said, if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. There's the metaphor for darkness means evil, wickedness, the shadowy nature of that which is wicked. He says, if then the light in you is darkness, how how great is the darkness? How, How bad is it? Oh, it's so important for us to understand that the eye is the soul of a person. The eye of the body is the soul of a person. And when you turn your eye into the instrument of sin... Your soul is full of darkness. That's what John has been driving toward here. And I ask again, upon what do you gaze? What do you look at? Especially when no one else is looking. What do you see? I mean, with the kind of electronic media we have at our fingertips these days, and with the visuals right in front of most of us, do you use your eyes for good or evil purposes. And that's 
a lot of intensive questioning of our soul, the eye, the lamp of the body. But he's not done. Notice what he says thirdly, pride in possessions. And this is potentially difficult to translate this particular phrase. And in the ESV I said it's pride in possessions. But listen to several other ways this this particular phrase has been translated. I just picked out a few from fairly prominent English translations of the Bible. The pride of life. The vain glory of life. The pride in one's lifestyle. The desire for possessions and worldly arrogance. The arrogance produced by material possessions. The boastful pride of life. Being too proud of what we have. The boasting of what he has and does. Pride in our achievements and possessions. The pride in riches. And you can obviously find out very readily that what John is doing is he's linking the idea of pride and materialism. He's linking together one of the oldest sins there are, pride, and a fashionable idea, and that is possessions, material goods, the things, the stuff of this this world, the stuff of life. And whether you're talking about money, whether you're talking about land, whether you're talking about prestige, whether you're talking about anything and everything that this world provides, John is saying, do not love the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in your possessions. In fact, maybe for a great example of this, look back at Jesus' teaching in Luke chapter 12. This may hit it right on the head for us. Luke chapter 12. This is the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12, 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, that seems like an honest question on the outset. I mean, maybe the brother wasn't willing to share with his sibling the inheritance. Or maybe the one who's asking his sibling for this divided inheritance, maybe he's got a heart problem. And Jesus, apparently believing so, verse 14 says, But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And then this is the teaching, verse 15, And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. And that's apparently what his sin was. For one's life, please don't miss this, For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. As you've heard, Joked about from time to time, we don't see hearses carrying U-Hauls. Can't take it with you. Your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions, Jesus said. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? Uh, Maybe read in here, he's got his thumbs underneath his suspenders. Right? It's pretty cocky. It's pretty proud. It's got a lot of stuff, and it's growing by leaps and bounds. And he says, as he thinks to himself, Self, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops, implied, and I got a lot of them. 
And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat, drink, and be merry. Hmm. And verse 20 comes like a bolt of lightning out of the blue. Verse 20. But God said to him, what's the next word? Fool! Exclamation point. Fool! This night, this very night, your soul, the one that you've been talking to, soul... Your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? They're not going to be yours. You're going to die tonight, soul. And what will you possess? What will you have? If you've amassed all of the world's riches, what will you exchange for it? Will you exchange the riches of this world for your Soulish forever? Apparently he wasn't willing. Jesus said, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You know what I think the difference is between someone who has possessions and someone who has pride in possessions? It's not the possessions. It's not your body. It's not your eye. It's not your hands. It's not your feet. It's what you do with them. It's not your possessions. It's what you think about them. It's what you do with them. And for instance, for this particular man, he had possessions, but he wasn't thankful to God for them. He had material goods, but he didn't see them as a gift of God. He had all that he wanted... So much so that he couldn't even put all of his stuff in the current barns that he had. And so his thought was, rather than acknowledging the grace of God, I'll tear down these barns and build bigger ones because it's time to relax, eat and drink and be merry. He didn't see his possessions the way Jesus said possessions ought to be seen. Holding them loosely. Not having pride in them. Not having arrogance in them. And by the way, even though I don't think this is where, where John is heading in 1 John 2, 15 to 17, I can't help but see some aspect of a parallel between the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life with Genesis 3, 6. Do you remember that? you remember Eve? She had that forbidden fruit that God said, don't touch it, don't eat it. Actually, didn't say don't touch it, just don't eat it. She added the, the part about not touching it lest you die, instigated by Satan himself. And interestingly, not as though these are the three categories of loving the world, but interesting parallels nonetheless, it says, Genesis 3, 6, that when she saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, she wanted it for her body, She wanted it for nourishment. She had to have it. And when she saw that it was a delight to the eyes, lust of the eyes, she saw that it was good. 
She used her eyeballs for evil purposes. She had to have it. They were a delight to her. You see something? you got to have it. You throw off all biblical principles because you've got to have it. And she saw that it was desirable to make one what? Wise. Pride. Pride. Or, or how about what Satan did to Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 4? Matthew 4, 3 says, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Where was this? Where was this temptation? In the wilderness. Had Jesus been fasting? Wouldn't it have been a temptation for you or for me to say, 40 days, I'm really hungry. I mean, what, what's, what's the problem? Well, what's the problem as the Son of God? I can just create. And if I just want to create just, just, just a few loaves to, to satisfy my hunger, is that a problem? Is anybody going to have difficulty with that? Jesus refused because He knew where Satan was going. Then it says, The devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Just throw yourself down and watch God's protection. And then Satan apparently took him up on the pinnacle. And I don't really even understand that because how does Satan take Jesus anywhere? And do anything. But it says he took him to the very pinnacle and he says, look out upon everything and you look at all the kingdoms of the world, all of them, and I tell you they are yours if you kneel down and worship me. They're yours. And apparently they may have actually been Satan's as the God of this world for the giving away to Jesus. And Jesus refused. Why? Because he's not going to be involved with Satan in the pride of life. The pride of saying, this is, this is all that I own. And if you too worship me, the only thing in the universe that does not yet worship me. And if you too worship me, you can have it all. Boy, wouldn't that be a temptation to say in your own heart, you mean, you mean I can have it all? John concludes, as I do, with two destinations. Two destinations. Passing world or an eternal abiding. Notice verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires. You see, it's a package deal. The world has its desires. But the world is passing away. It's going to be destroyed. It's going to end. It's going to become futile and... It's desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Oh, don't miss this. The eternal destinies of those who pursue one way or the other will one day be manifest. And read in again to John's very words the concept of darkness and the world. Notice back in 1 John chapter 2, verse 8, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So what has he already described as passing away? The darkness, the evil of this world. 
And he says it again, verse 17 of chapter 2, and the world is passing away along with its desires so that you can synonymously say darkness and world, the evil of this world, are to be seen together. And they're passing away. They're going to be judged. It isn't worth it, my friends. It is not worth it for you to be in love with the world. Because if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. And if you love the world to the exclusion of the love of the Father, you're in darkness. And if you're in darkness, it'll pass away because the world itself is passing away. But, but, if you do the will of God, you'll abide for how long? Forever. Forever. Eternity with God, serving Christ in the perfect power of the Holy Spirit. In my judgment, not even a comparison. Not even a comparison. Second Peter 3, the earth, the world, will be destroyed as with intense heat. All that is in the world, it's passing away. It's going to be burned up. It's going to be judged eternally. And there's no value. There's nothing in this world that will give you and me any eternal fruit the only fruit, the only abiding reality to reside, to remain with God forever and ever is to do His will. His will. You remember in Mark chapter 3 when Jesus' mother and His siblings were coming to see Him and Jesus was doing the will of God by teaching in that home and they were looking for Him and it says that they had been looking for Him. He had been about His Father's business. They were about looking for Him. And when they finally found by word of mouth where He was, they went. It was so crowded in and outside the house. They were trying to get to Him. And they sent a message to Him on the inside. Your mother and your brothers are here. Implied, come out. Stop your teaching. And the Bible says that Jesus answered their query with this. Who are my mother and my brothers? I tell you who are my mother and my brothers. Those who do the will of God. So in essence, the family of God exists when they do the will of God. Even when we're told by those close to us, don't do that, do this. Jesus wasn't being rude. He wasn't being disrespectful. He was proving a point. And that is, I will not be dissuaded from doing the will of God because it is His will and I love Him and I don't have love for the world, the evil of this world in my heart. Declarative, strong, decisive. I will not be swayed by the world the love of the world, the stuff of this world, the lust of this world. I won't do it. I tell you, this, this, is a, this is a perfect segue 
into this little book that we're going to be studying as men. I'm going to be there Wednesday night. I'm going to be a part of James Henrich's group, Worldliness Resisting the Seduction of a Fallen World. I can't wait to see the practicalities of implementing this very Sunday morning's message. How do you do it practically? In fact, I think this is so important, just like Dr. Scott Christmas taught when he taught at our last men's retreat, this is so incredibly important that I want to do an entire part two message off of this part one message which has been expositional and do a part two message that is all practical and I want to put on the screen and I want to talk to you about the implications of what it means not to love the world because the question for you and me is this, do you love the world? Do you love the world? Please don't be like the one for whom the Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy 4.10, Demas, having loved this present world, has departed me. Don't be a Demas. Love the Father, not the world. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we desire, even in calling you Father, to love what you love and to stay away from the things that you hate. May we do so because of that love and even that love is in our hearts because you first loved us. May we love you with no essential rivals. In your name we pray. Amen.